0: Welcome, everyone. It's This Week in Marmins. Hi, don't you know? I am your host, Jeff Openshaw. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I've <laughs> This is the 544th time, and I think there's only one show I haven't been on in the history of it. So anyway, I try to keep it fresh. Hey, thanks for tuning in, folks. Glad to have you with us on this beautiful program where we go over Latter-day Saint news. If you're new to the show, by the way, if you don't if, if you don't know what it is, it's your first time, Uh, We are primarily a news podcast focused on Latter-day Saint news. We were the first to ever step into said space uh, 11 and a half years ago when we first started doing it. We also pepper in different interviews with luminaries and interesting people within the Latter-day Saint space, depending on the week. This week is a news week. I'd say it's mostly news weeks, like 75-25, that kind of thing. Anyway, we're glad you're here. If you haven't subscribed to the show, please do so. Wherever you get podcasts, whatever app you're using, just hit that subscribe button so you'll always get this in your inbox typically around Tuesday, Tuesday mornings or so, uh, Utah time. And that's not to say, this is not even a Utah production, folks, but many of you are in Utah. So like unto the church, we will frame things around (laughs) Utah. Uh, And I just want to give a big shout out and thank you to our uh, Patreon supporters who part with two or three bucks a month to help make this show possible. That's awesome. You can do it too. We'd really appreciate it if you went to patreon.com slash just. Signed up there and pledged a couple bucks a month. Help us do this great thing. This takes effort. This takes time. This takes wonderful people who volunteer their time, like Devin, my co-host, who I'll introduce in a second. Uh, so we appreciate you doing that. So big thanks to all of you on Patreon to make it possible. You guys are my heroes. And if I'm ever anywhere where any of you are, I will buy you lunch. End of story. Full stop. Anyway, folks, like I mentioned, hasn't been here for a while. I like to tease our our resident socialist, but I don't think that applies right now. He's
1: our resident <laughs> nice,
0: very nice person, the nicest person, perhaps. Devin no, Thorpe, I, I like the way bad. you uh,
1: you uh, you 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 think of socialists as being nice people. That's good. That's good.
0: I mean, when I think of Marx
1: and Stalin in particular, I think about <laughs> their niceness. Hey, they're not socialists; those are communists. Let's be you know be careful not to perpetuate. The, actually uh, Devin false I don't want I don't
0: want to get political but that is a false correlation and take a minute a minute for our listeners because you get this a lot in US media you know you talk about how democrats are communists whatever stuff like that yeah very quickly draw a distinction between the between the socialism we are referencing and what communism is
1: yeah Go sure ahead. you know the the uh communists generally and having lived in China I have some experience with it and it's not not pleasant. I love China, but uh, the government uh, is kind of a totalitarian government uh, that controls the economy. Now, it's softened a bit with their adaptations toward uh, capitalism, but even still, the communist owns at least part of virtually every substantial enterprise in the country. Uh, so it's it's kind of a um, uh, a difficult, difficult model to live under. Uh, You know, Denmark and most countries in Europe have some form of socialism. Of course, the United States already has a bunch of different socialist programs. So uh, socialism and democracy are not at all in conflict. But you can say that about communism and uh, democracy. They don't – communism and democracy don't go together.
0: So, go. sorry. That was pretty that sounded,
1: good. Well – I feel bad. That was impromptu, and uh, I hope right. we didn't ruin Twim today. No, Devin's discussion. No, that's that's we're not. That's it. We're not going to talk about you going
0: after Curtis again. None of that's going to be on the show. <laughs> we're good. If you're new, Devin ran for Congress the last cycle and had a great time doing it.
1: Yeah, it, it was great. It was great. awesome. Uh,
0: how are you doing, my friend? What's new up the, over there in the Wasatch Front, where you actually are?
1: It, it you know it's great. The weather has cooled off a little bit. Uh, oh. We had some genuinely cool days. In fact, we set a record for the lowest high temperature the other day. Uh, we've the had a lot of rain, uh, and um, the faithful are crediting our governor, who asked us to pray for rain, with uh, causing the rain to happen. But uh, it was we've had a very rainy August which is great. We desperately needed rain. We only need three or four or five more inches this month. Uh, I don't think we'll get that. Oh, yeah, that's going to but-
0: happen in Utah. Sure. <laughs> You're going to be but, good. But,
1: uh, you know, Tennessee, you know, you you and I s- straddle Tennessee, you could say. Yeah, I've uh, been to Tennessee a few times, yeah. Yeah, and and Tennessee had uh, 17 inches of rain in a single day yesterday or the day before, mm-hmm. and uh, that's more than Salt Lake City gets in a year, to put that into perspective. That's a right. shocking amount of water.
0: And it's uh, and even Tennessee can't handle it. They've had quite they've had their hands yeah. full with that. And it's of course tragic. The, and then the Northeast oh, as well, you've got the tropical storm that hit there. Um yeah. rough time for that for weather in the US, uh, a rougher time for uh the people of Afghanistan. And I won't let Have you had mention of this in your Sunday meetings? You know, last Sunday was when everything fell apart, but it was kind of during the day. So it wouldn't have wiggled its way into our SACRA meetings or anything like that. Um, Did you hear much discussion about it uh, in shape or form during your Sunday meetings yesterday?
1: No, no, we didn't. Um, But that is largely due to the fact that we had state conference. Ah. And uh, so we were not in the normal conventional mode. And our stake, I was very grateful for this at the last minute, that the general session was broadcast over the church's fancy new broadcast system. And so we watched state conference like general conference, and it was awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. It was was great. You know, state conference in my jammies for the first time ever. (laughs) Uh, I've done it. Well, we had COVID, so. That's been a
0: thing though. Apparently we're not going back even with Delta stuff surging. Uh, no one, we're, we're, we're not running the risk so far of like stopping second hour or going back to a broadcast. We'll see what happens. I don't know. It'll be weird. Yeah. Uh, church was interesting for us this past weekend. We had some really good talks. One that focused a lot on, on, uh, maligned disenfranchised groups within the church and what we can do to reach out to them and love them more, which I thought was timely and wonderful. Very, very effective. Yeah. And then a high counselor spoke. And this very much is just straight up me admitting just the classic prejudices we have. We see a guy from the high council get up there, pretty old fella, probably knocking on 80, just kind of dawdling up there to do his thing. He gave the most wonderful talk um, about how essentially basing it on I am a child of God and how we are all children of God, regardless of who we are or what we believe in. And and he said, he went to this party, he said, please forgive me for bringing up politics right now from the pulpit, but I think this is an important thing to discuss. And he starts reading excerpts from church history about things church leaders have said. He's like, like he read something from Heber J. Grant that was basically, essentially vouching for a lot of the components of the New Deal would be the best way to look at it. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Many today would call that very liberal policies. I'm pretty sure he's still okay in the eyes of God. And he just kind of, but he didn't just lean on, he went on both sides of the spectrum. He talked about how like, you know, David O. McKay was an ardent Republican. Both of his counselors were Democrats at the time. He pivoted over to Ezra Taft Benson. And for every single one, he just said, I'm pretty sure they're all okay in the eyes of God. He's like, brothers and sisters, like, if I look at this as an individual, there are tenets of the Republican Party that I think align with the gospel. There are tenets of the Democratic Party that I think align with the gospel. And likewise, there are beliefs in both parties that I think are absolutely contradict the gospel on both sides. And so he was just like, we should not define ourselves by these parties. We should define ourselves as being disciples of Christ. And if in the political space we identify more with one or the other, that's okay. Our leaders have yeah. done it. We can do it too. It was very refreshing. And, and like I admitted, not what I expected I was going to hear when that went on. And so we had a great meeting with first talking all about how to reach out to you know the people on the margins in the church. And then this great reminder that we can be from various persuasions and we can still we can yeah. love each other and care for each other. We need more of that in church on the regular methinks. I think that would yeah. Be very I, I
1: think that's great. And and you know, I I I did say some uh I, I did subtly or or not so subtly malign communism earlier in our, our conversation, but you know, it's a reminder that uh, having spent time in China that uh Something like half the members of the Chinese, Chinese members of the church. And there are many thousands of members of the church in China. And they are. (laughs) That's not not true.
0: Uh Oh, it's stuck. It's stuck, Devin.
1: (laughs) It's stuck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just trying, trying not to, to
0: officially acknowledge the saints in China that are not actually on oh. the books, but yeah,
1: no, you're fine, you're good. Yeah, the the uh, they, you know, probably half of them are communists, and and many of them would be not just co- communists of convenience, but some would be you know believing communists, uh, and so it's a great reminder: we're all children of God, and and our politics don't define our uh, path towards salvation, and yeah. Exaltation and all—that's good. Good reminder, Jeff. Way to go! I dug it. I just—I lucked
0: into a good Sunday, and thankfully, my kids let me actually like pay attention to it, Good. <laughs> something out of it. So that was nice. Anyway, so good. Glad everything's going well. Uh, we started school here this week. That was my, so my—it was my youngest's first time actually going to school because of COVID last
1: year. So that's been oh a yeah,
0: bittersweet little time then getting here. Oh my gosh,
1: my yeah, that's freaky. That's freaky, especially I- sending sending your kid off to school. For the first time in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, that's got to feel weird. I mean, I feel pretty okay in
0: terms of his safety, but it still feels a little weird. But like, he did, great oh, with yeah. he did great with Zoom kindergarten. He was a trooper, but you can only do so much of that. I mean, it's good for him to be there and have fun. He already told me today he had he liked being there more, even with a mask on. Oh, sure. And he
1: did doing stuff up in his bedroom with a Chromebook, you know, all day. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, well, that's awesome. A good kid. Uh, that is awesome. Well, congratulations. And- uh Let's you know cross our fingers, hope you know hope he stays safe and well, along with all the other kids in the country. You know, in in Utah where we don't, where we've banned mask mandates, um, we're seeing our COVID cases spike as kids return to school this week, and uh, so it's kind of scary. Did they
0: actually ban mask mandates because when the I mean, I, Cox wouldn't sign that kind of bill. I would not see him doing that. Did Herbert? Yeah, sign he did person? it. He that's, he that's
1: signed that, yes, oh, well. yes he did, yes, yes he did. Well,
0: uh, apparently because this is one of the upsides to BYU being a completely private institution and receiving no state funds, uh, BYU will require masks in the classroom this fall. And these dominoes have fallen pretty quickly. Only last week during Education Week, they were kind of encouraging them for people to yeah. attend, but then President Worthen came out and just said, "Nope, you will need to do this," and also please get vaccinated. Uh, so they're going to require masks in classrooms, even though 70% of students and 76% of the faculty have received at least one COVID-19 vaccination, which I don't even know why we play with that statistic because you're not fully vaccinated. If you're getting a two-dose COVID shot, you're not fully vaccinated until you've had the second dose. So wh- I don't even know why we go by you've had at least one yeah. shot because you're not vaccinated until you've had the two. And it's been a couple of weeks after the fact. Whatever. That's another thing.
1: That's true. Um, That is true.
0: So that's that's the gist of it. But they're gonna they're gonna go forward with this, try to you know do their part to keep down hospital rates. Uh, I think it's a good move. I mean, especially for adults, like it's fine. It's not everyone's dream scenario or anything. But if I were there right now and they told me I had to wear a mask in class, like okay, whatever, it's fine. Who cares.
1: Yeah, good deal. Yeah, um, masks are not a, a huge burden. Um, nobody thinks they're a party, but. Why do we treat them as a burden though?
0: That's what I still can't, my mind struggles with this. And I, I believe a lot in trying to develop empathy and understanding for people who feel ways I don't, but I struggle with this because I don't get why I agree. It's not convenient. It's not anyone's favorite thing, but how does it cross the line into this like abhorrent (laughs) practice?
1: Yeah, I guess um, it, 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 it's, you have to go two steps further, I think, to understand it. And, and so the, you, you have to really fundamentally believe, and, and many people do, including some in the church, because of, you know I, frankly, bad information spread intentionally by people, uh, some of whom have good intentions, but bad information. But I think they believe COVID is not a threat. They believe it is exaggerated. Uh, that it's a hoax. Um, you know, some people are, are, are disinclined to believe any of the statistics they're hearing and seeing. That's and true. so they, yeah. they, um, yeah, I think they, they come at it feeling like uh, being forced to wear a mask to protect against something that isn't a threat is bothersome, very bothersome. And, uh, even I struggle even with that logic, but I think that's what it is. They they view the, themselves as giving up their rights uh, to dress themselves or something. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's why for me I just feel like it's not it's not like a big deal to wear one, but yeah. we yeah. treat it. And I think there's especially for adults. I fully understand it gets a bit murkier with kids, and as far as how kids do or do not contract. Covid, it's more complicated. The science isn't as sound on that front yet, and it's kind of hard. Like I mean, like my kids go in there wearing a mask all day, and his teachers wearing a mask, and yeah, like she can't see his his adorable grin when he's happy, and yeah and like that does matter for kids completely. I mean, the upside sure. of virtual was you could at least see each other's faces completely. Those aren't perfect
1: solutions, but hopefully that'll now. Hopefully that'll there, go there away. There are no perfect solutions in a pandemic, and it's interesting. No. You know, a hundred years ago during the 1918 pandemic, the same issues came up. It's fascinating to me that we did not progress very far. We did not progress very far. And uh, here we are. Um, A century later, we're still arguing over whether or not we should wear masks during a pandemic. Um, You know, the, the church, you know, came out with unequivocal guidance asking members to mask up, and to uh, uh, to get vaccinated. Uh, and it's interesting the the uh, issues that are around that. One of the things that, you know, the Trib report, and I think you talked about this last week uh, a little bit, but I, I want to just jump in and extend the conversation a little bit, but that there are a lot of people in the church, a lot that aren't following that counsel. And I'm wondering, Jeff, if you think that this is different than the reaction we'd have gotten 30 or 40 years ago. Mm. I think it's different that if this were 30 or 40 years ago and the brethren said unequivocally, please mask up, please get vaccinated, that a higher proportion of church going Mormons would follow the counsel than are following this counsel. What do you think? It's purely speculative, of course, yeah. but
0: I- I'm probably inclined to agree with you. I think at least anecdotally, it seems that there's, the thing that I've seen in the past many years, even just you know 11 years of doing this show, but even before that, I feel like you didn't see 30 years ago as much of perhaps more and more ultra conservative church membership being less inclined to sort of fall in line in that same sense i i don't know and i don't know if it's the whole idea of just you know personal liberty and things like that and as we i started to identify more with our political affiliations for better or worse mostly for worse um and Mm -hmm. making that sort the primary thing that defines us and again i'm spitballing a bit here i don't i'm not back i don't have any main data to cite anything but uh I feel like I have seen that in covering this, and it seems like we identify more and more with what is what it is for me and what I am comfortable with, and the fact that I make my own choices. And the brother, the brother still stress that they still stress even what you hear in general conference. Please take it to heart and pray about it and make sense of it and everything like that. They don't. They don't. Yeah, the church does not stress blind obedience as much as some other areas or some other communities would have you believe, right? And I think 30 years ago, mm-hmm. you'd almost always expect that to be the quote unquote questioning side of things, the one, the rabble yeah. yeah And that's, that's good. That's an element that's going to be an element of our faith. Okay, fine. That still is. But now we have this other side of it. Yeah. Where there's uh, other groups of people who are, who are so bent on the idea of, of one's own agency and mm-hmm. kind of like t- taking that in many ways to an extreme. And I guess we kind of see that, like with with the reaction to yeah. the encouragement for masks and vaccinations. I mean, yeah, we people have just said very interesting things of just like, well, you know, we have our agency, like we do. We have our agency, whether yeah. or not we want to follow the prophet's counsel. And in, in many many areas, we have that agency, and we all struggle in different ways, uh, you know, to follow through on the counsel we receive. I think every general conference, I go into it being like, all right, this is the time, Jeff. This is the one. <laughs> You're going to walk away from this, a permanently changed man. And, uh, you know, and you try hard and stuff, but so much of that, while it does affect, it does affect people around me. Like how good of a job I do as a disciple absolutely has an effect on other people, but it doesn't necessarily have an effect on their physical health. Um, right. Which is a little bit different, but I, yeah, I'm with you. I think it has changed
1: a little bit. It's interesting. I think if you go back 30 years ago, I think there would have been a clear perception. I don't know that it was ever true, but I think there was a perception uh, that liberals or Democrats were more deviant from the Council of the Brethren than conservatives. And what's interesting is with the masks and vaccines, there's pretty clearly a correlation that it's the, the the hardcore conservatives that are more likely to disregard the this particular prophetic counsel. And yeah. so it's interesting that we in a way there's a temptation for those of us on the left to say oh those right wingers aren't following the prophet but but you know in some ways we've been I don't want to say guilty but certainly we we have long been accused of that. And I think with some foundation, I think what's different is conservatives always did the same thing that every individual, regardless of their politics, every individual in the church uh, disregards some of the counsel of the brethren. And I don't mean to excuse it uh, entirely, but I think we all do that, right? We all try to harmonize the portfolio of beliefs that we all hold with the gospel and our own personal temptations and weaknesses. Right. And so there've always been people in the church across the political spectrum who have tried or sometimes not tried very hard (laughs) to comply with some counsel from the brethren on some things, uh, i I had a church leader. I won't give you the title, so no one can accuse me of calling someone out but david okay. But he sort no. of he sort of taught me uh to take my wife out for dinner on sunday uh, <gasps> uh because why should she work, and I don't want to work, so we'll go somewhere else. This sounds uh, like some, make someone else work <laughs> this
0: this sounds like elder cook this sounds like you <laughs>
1: on you so i I just think of uh the you know, there always have been people who disregarded mm-hmm. what we might think of as that that uh, council um and maybe maybe my if there is a point maybe it is that we shouldn't fall into the temptation of politicizing that within the church because we we've always we've always struggled to do everything the brethren tell us to do
0: yeah we do. I, I think the thing that frustrates me the most, though, is I would love to move on from pandemic life, so we can at, le- <laughs> at the ver- at the very least have like that yeah. that state of things in a reasonably normal state. Um, I say that with a caveat. I really hope, though, we can learn good lessons from COVID. Like I think it's shown us that we can find different ways to reach out to minister to evangelize using different media, and that's yeah. useful. And I I'm so worried that I see so many leaders frankly speaking about like how we want to get back to normal and that means just resetting exactly to where we were in early March 2020 and there's a lot of that I want to but I also can't help but wonder if there are things that we should you know ponder that we can do differently and change and like if have we not seen that we have great tools before us that we can maximize I don't know what that is exactly right but yeah. um we can do we can do better uh speaking of the way things go at church though I'm going to read a couple of things here that have come from some, some listeners. We posted one of these on our Facebook page. This one came from Twitter. So this is an example of, for one, how we just shouldn't talk about this kind of stuff from the pulpit in the first place. Okay. So a primary president in a ward, hardcore anti-vaxxer and anti-masker, um, was speaking in sacrament meeting and called the prophet, quote, an influencer who is trying to control church members with the mark of the beast. And then like nobody nobody shut her down. And th- this raises the questions of like, that's not a, ju- not a judge in Israel, but if you're actually saying that about the prophet from the pulpit, I think that that hues closely to some of the official handbook definitions of what merits apostasy and some right. form of, of a uh, council of love with some of your leaders in some capacity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. I would. I do not envy any leader who's in that situation. No matter if even if that that leader is like super on board with masks and safety and all that kind of stuff, but it's like that's just an awkward place to be in. Like, what do you do? You just stand up and like shut it down. That's hard. I'm not. I'm not harping on anybody. I'm harping on the yeah. person who said things like that. Likewise, here's another one that literally just came in as we've been talking. Devin, uh, a listener sent sent us a message, and I asked if we could read this. I've been doing all this while we've been talking. I'm such a
1: you're so Ad- efficient.
0: such an adept multitasker. So y- this will remain y- yeah. anonymous, but here's how it says, quote, this is how political my ward is. The bishop refused to the read the email sent out by the first presidency about wearing masks. When I pasted it into a post on the ward Facebook page, it was promptly deleted. I was one of five people wearing a mask in church. How are we supposed to teach the youth to follow the prophet when we have to deal with <laughs> garbage like this at the ward level? I think of two people here. Lamoni and Meatloaf. Lamoni was willing to give up his sins to know God and Meatloaf would do anything for love, but he won't do that. My ward is filled with Meatloaf Mormons. They will follow the prophet as long as it is convenient for them. And that is the wrong message to send to these youth. And this is coming from a, myself, a conservative. Uh, I'll all about God, guns and guts. I'm all about God, guns and guts. But when the prophet speaks, those are my marching orders. Um, and again, not to politicize it, but yeah, that's frustrating. And I mean, like we read it over the pulpit in my ward. I think mine has been fine with it. I mean, our stake presidency of the week prior had sent an email and said, no, you need to wear masks again. And everybody just did it. I haven't seen like much wackiness in that regard. But the wackiness yeah. is, is to say nothing of the vaccination element. It's it's remarkable how... And, and to be clear, that letter did not say to be read over the pulpit. I think a lot of bishops just sort of inferred like this went out as a letter to the entire church that showed up in your inbox we should probably read it over the pulpit. That is still a Bishop's decision to make. It did not come through the official yeah. letters channel where it, those things say, read this on Sunday at the pulpit. They, they right, spell that out right. very
1: clearly. It didn't say that. So, okay. But, uh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting observation an important point. Uh, but you know, I think a lot of people in the church are feeling betrayed by other members who are refusing. Like there was a tribune article about, uh, Uh, an LDS ICU doc who expressed that idea that there is this sense of betrayal among healthcare workers in Utah who are faithful, believing Latter-day Saints who have Mm -hmm. seen the council repeatedly over time from the Brethren to, you know, participate, to be careful, Uh, you know, that here in I think throughout the country, the church stopped holding meetings and in my, most of the world, they stopped holding meetings for months. Uh, and I mean, I was taking this pretty seriously and yet uh, some members of the church have refused to be vaccinated or to wear masks. And so it's, so he was saying, yeah, we, we as healthcare workers feel betrayed by our co-religionists. And I, mm. that's an interesting observation. I think to I'm a little bit sensitive to that. I, I'm not, you know, hyper angry or anything, but but you know, my wife is kind of vulnerable uh, mm-hmm. to to these things, and so I, I I am a little bit disappointed in in those who refuse to wear masks uh, yeah. and get vaccinated. Yeah. It's hard not to feel it's
0: disappointment hard. in that sense, right?
1: That's tough. Yeah, I think so. I think so, and well, I can't imagine how I would feel if I were a healthcare worker and I'm taking care of COVID patients every day, risking my life, literally. You know, can you imagine how that would feel to have people coming in unvaccinated in July and August of 2021? You know, it would just feel so frustrating. Yeah, at the least frustrating.
0: We've we've, we've had a long time to uh, just get it together and try to beat this thing, and we just are sent, yeah. we're essentially choosing not to. Yeah. At a societal level, we're choosing not to end the pandemic. We're just hoping it'll go away and not and not wanting to do the work, which isn't that much work, quite frankly, to do it. Just yeah. everybody has, just the overwhelming majority has to agree at a societal level to do that. And that's where I'm all for rugged individualism, but it doesn't work in pandemics. You just kind of have to set that aside. Yeah. We've been at this pandemic stuff for a year and a half. I don't even know what this show would be about if it weren't for COVID. But thankfully, <laughs> there is other news, though. There's other There's stuff other that stuff. does happen. I guess this whole show would yeah. only be 15 minutes long if not for COVID. In, in yeah. Ways. So let's get a, a wee bit scandalous. One Peggy Fletcher Stack, who uh, allegedly is to be trusted, uh, posted- Yes. I know, her Peggy. Fa- She's great. Okay. On her Facebook feed this week that- uh, she didn't write an article about it, but basically, it's come to light that uh, the funds to build City Creek, you know, the City Creek Mall is that that mall that straddles Main Street, abuts Temple Square, it replaces ECMI Center, the Crossroads Center. It's, uh, it's all nice and fancy. The church built it, not without some controversy. You know, many wondered if we should be building this mall in the first place, just for like, why are we building a mall, regardless of any of the funding behind it? So the church has long said it does not use tithing money to fund for profit endeavors. Apparently, per Peggy's reporting, it has come to light that while the principle on tithing was never used for it, the interest, however, has been used for the investment arm. And so, Peggy was curious: like,
1: does this change the way you feel about anything? No, I mean, because you know, let's let's be real: the all hundred percent of the money the church has is either tithing money or you know donations, or it is interest and financial returns and profits derived from investing the tithing funds. So a hundred percent of what the church has is in one of those two buckets. So it it, it is a meaningless uh, observation to say it came from the interest on. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the money mushes together, right? Yeah. Uh, um it's not like it's really separate. uh, Right. At the end of the day, they they say money is fungible. Right. Mm -hmm, Uh, And mm -hmm. and which is to say you could move $10 out of this account, move it into the other account and it works exactly the same. Uh, So it's just accounting that would separate them. Uh, So if it's okay for the church to do it, it's okay for the church to do it. And if it's not, it's not. And, I would go a, a point further on City Creek. Um, I, if the church can invest its money, then there's no reason the church can't invest in City Creek. If you say, well, it can't because it's a bad investment, then I would say, well, if it's a bad investment, then it's motivated by the church mission to support the community, to protect the environment around uh, its flagship temple and its Mm -hmm. corporate headquarters uh well for crying out loud uh if it it would seem perfectly aligned with reasonable missions to build the the mall uh for the sake of the community and for the sake of the the neighborhood around the the temple and so if it's a good investment it's just like buying stock in any company and if it's a if it's a bad investment it's a genuine church mission. There, there isn't a, a, a scenario I can conceive of where you wouldn't say, okay, the church is okay to, to do that. Um, now, one of the criticisms people like to make is that the church doesn't spend enough on humanitarian aid. I'm, I'm a big fan that the church could spend more than it does, but I will say this. I, you know, the church has been a little bit opaque. They They, they keep dropping tea leaves of clues about its spending on humanitarian stuff. And it looks to me, from what I'm reading and putting tea leaves together, that the church has increased its humanitarian spending about tenfold over the past decade. So we can argue about whether they're doing enough, but they're clearly doing more and more and more, which I think is fantastic.
0: That is good. I like your perspective there, especially reminding us that whatever money we have we, and we are investing has at some point come from tithing, especially because we're not big on debt. I don't think we were taking out a loan so we could play the yeah. market or anything, right? We're not buying no. on margin or anything like that. So, yeah. Um, and that's a really good point. At some point, whether it came just from savings accounts with tithing and they took the interest and invested that, whether they took the tithing itself and just. Invest it, whatever it is, it does. It comes from there in one way or another. Do you feel like in any way there's? Is it in any way disingenuous though when we go out of our way for PR reasons to say tithing money doesn't go to the for-profit endeavors? That's kind of our line, and I'm not trying to. Yeah. I'm not trying to trap anybody. I'm just curious. Like, is is there a messaging part of it though that comes off as? It's it's tough
1: tough for us to know because the church isn't transparent about these things, and we could argue about that. Um, but it appears, from what I've read, that people have disclosed uh, that that it seems like the church does generate more tithing and other donations each year than it costs to operate the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, there is if you will, uh, there has been a, a profit in essence at, that has then been available to invest for future, for the rainy day or whatever the, the purpose of, of maintaining this, uh, huge financial janitors. reserve. Janitors, just pay
0: janitors again, people. <laughs> yeah,
1: I would be a big fan we of that. Have the but, you know, I, so I, th- you know, I, the, 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 again, the, the church unequivocally has the legal right to invest its surplus funds. The church unequivocally has the, 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 the right to do these things. It, it, there, there is just no precedent that would argue otherwise. I, um I think the more interesting question is, you know, if you've got a surplus of tithes, uh, each year, is there more good we could do in the world uh, yeah. than invest after you've got enough money in the bank that it would appear that profits on the investments would be enough to fund the operation of the church? That's we're we're approaching that level of of mm-hmm. the church's reserves, and so that does beg the question. So I, I don't mean to suggest. Whatever the church does is fine by me, but um, which, of course, it is. But uh, it better you know, be. I after think,
0: all that talk about following the
1: prophet on masks, Devin, you've you've <laughs> laid down the gauntlet. Oh yeah. <laughs> so no, I think uh, you know. I think the City Creek is uh, is a silly argument. That's the bottom line. Just okay. just worrying about whether the church, how the church paid for City Creek, is a silly silly thing to worry about, um, and we shouldn't worry about it. There are bigger things to worry about. Um, And before we worry about the church, most of us should be worrying about ourselves. Uh, Booyah. All
0: right, folks. You're you're gonna love this one, James the Mormon. This is a quick a couple mentions here. You remember James the Mormon? Do you remember James the Mormon, Devin? Do you even know kinda, James? Kind of,
1: kind of, sorta. I don't know that I've ever like even seen. Maybe I think I saw maybe one short YouTube video clip I mean, of him. You're, I you're, think you're that's the,
0: it. You're, you're definitely the target demographic. So I'm surprised you, I'm kidding, know so much. About him. So <laughs> uh, James the Mormon, who we interviewed on the show a long time ago, we were probably one oh, really. Of those- one of his first interviews, yes. If you look for the episode, it's called like Vivant Bros. Something I should just retitle it James the Mormon. I was, yeah, I, I've learned good lessons on SEO over the years to so just call it something what it is so it can be indexed
1: appropriately by searching, right? Yes, um, yes, make it easier to find.
0: so James the Mormon started, uh, it's probably been five or six years, I would say made some waves. He was doing some rap, rap about the restoration, about all kinds of stuff, making his music videos in Provo. Good times. It's kind of bounced all over the place. He stopped following the Mormon identity in terms of a, a rap career. But now apparently after years of consideration, he is bringing back James. It's been three years. And now he's bringing back James, the Mormon. It is happening once more. He will be James, the Mormon ing. And maybe we should check in with old James and just see, uh, See how he's doing. I haven't talked to him yeah. in a little while. Yeah. So you need uh, to have him
1: back on the show. We See probably should. Him. That was
0: that was a fun interview. I remember going into that interview because I think if memory serves, which I have not listened to this episode in a very long time, um, Al, my old, my old co-host, I think we went into it, assuming this guy kind of like knew that yeah, you know, you're you're making raps about like the restoration. That's good, but we could also kind of like wink wink and have a, like a smile about it, like, ah, oh, this is good, man. He was very serious about his craft. That was the main thing we took away from it. Like, okay, well, this is not a place where we are going to speak sarcastically about any of this effort. This is uh, this is serious work. That's that's my was my main takeaway from that interview. Anyways, folks, you can find it on our website. Go find it at thisweekinmormons.com and maybe we'll have him back. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Who
1: knows? Well, uh, Jeff, you highlighted for me something uh, this week that I was really kind of excited about. Uh, that uh, BYU has created the new office of belonging, and I, I tell you the that there's a an associated statement on belonging. I, I it's just barely too long to read the whole thing, but um, you know the statement really is a fairly broadly inclusive statement. And Mm -hmm. President Worthen, uh, on the official university communications page, is quoted as saying that this is intended to combat prejudice of any kind, including that based on race, ethnicity, nationality, tribe, gender, age, disability, socioeconomic status, religious belief, and sexual orientation. Now, that's a pretty... Inclusive statement for BYU, and I am excited about that. Yeah, I think it's so. awesome,
0: and I know, and they're doing this after. I mean, BYU got really serious, especially in the wake of the George Floyd protests, about looking inward, about what could what more could be done to create a more inclusive campus. And I've I've appreciated their efforts a lot in this regard because I think I'm I'm blurring a lot of the uh, the specific uh, stories, I'm sure, but. I mean, I, I recall them coming out and being like, "Oh no, we've we've interviewed people, we, we've been hiring people, we've done a full like deep dive research on campus and found that oh yeah, racism is more real here than we expected to be." They haven't really shied away from this discussion, which is really good, I think, especially because in the wake of some of the uh, some of the sexual assault issues they faced in previous years, with the, and the way their police departments handled it and the honor code office. I don't think, in terms of being on top of it and kind of owning the issue and the messaging, they were strong there. But BYU's been doing a g- really good job on this front about owning the issue and stepping up to the plate and making things better. I don't think they are even saying this things are just are magically better, but I think they're right. taking the steps to develop the frameworks necessary uh, in order to get there, which is awesome. I mean, that's if you as long as you follow through on this plans and this doesn't become just some kind of like Potemkin organization then
1: Right, right.
0: Great. That's going to be awesome. So
1: Jeff, what is your take? Let's 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 juxtapose this or connect this to another topic I know you're interested in talking about. Uh, So, so president Worthen says this policy is intended to make people, regardless of their uh, religious belief or sexual orientation, feel welcome at BYU. Um, One of the things you wanted to talk about this week, I think is uh, elder Holland's talk, right? Uh, So talk, Tell us about how you think those connect.
0: Well, <laughs> since you're asking, this is one of these interesting case studies as well in the way different news outlets choose to cover different aspects of the same story. It's it's a pretty good example of that. So Elder Holland uh, spoke literally following the same like event when, when President Worthen announced the new Office of Belonging. Um, they were, I forgot what this, this was at the, uh, annual university conference, uh, of BYU and Albert Holland, of course, is former president of BYU. He, he went to great lengths to stress his love for Brigham Young University and how much it means to him personally. And he also, but he spoke a lot about sort of that BYU needs to be in a place where it's, I guess, willing to fight back in a sense. And I don't know if this wasn't going after like quote unquote woke culture necessarily, but saying that. We strive so hard, I basically, we're striving so much for acceptance, so much to be inclusive in this and that. Are we also laying, putting down our, our foot and saying, hey, we still represent the church, we represent the gospel and the standards of the church, and we can't be afraid of that? And he said, as, as much in his remarks, he said, like, even in academic circles, this might leave us being the odd one out. And if it is, so be it, whoop de doo um, As far as what different outlets cover, though... Deseret News kind of covered this and just said, quote, BYU must stand, quote, committed to its unique academic mission and to the church that sponsors it. I don't even know if it mentions the letter that someone wrote to him. I don't think it does. The full transcript does. Basically, you had a professor who wrote a letter, trying to find this, where'd it go? Sorry, buddy. I'm uh, losing my train of thought. That's all right. That's
1: cool. all right. Um,
0: it's essentially, a letter talking about like the concern that there are professors who speak out, who say things that contradict the views of the church, um, and how that's something we need to keep an eye out for. Because if you are working at BYU, you are agreeing to certain things, right? It's not just like mm-hmm. I was about to say. It's not like free academia, you know. It's it's church sponsored
1: academia. Um, yeah, but then the it, other part of it. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, as you can say, it, you know, one of the things he emphasized, I think, is that it is primarily intended to be an undergraduate institution, mm-hmm. and that has deep implications for the university and for the faculty. We have got to close uh, the Tanner because,
0: building now, too. Then, yes, right? Good. If
1: you're not going to, if you're not going to do, you know, Ph if you're not going to pump out PhDs in a field, the level of academic rigor is completely different. Uh, And what he seems to be saying is we don't care about academic rigor. We care about raising up the next generation of faithful Latter-day Saints. And it's the church's money. It's the church's school. Uh, I'm not sure I would want to be a professor there, but I can't argue that the church doesn't have the right to take that approach. How on earth could you? The church heavily subsidizes the school. Uh, You know, the tuition I can't imagine covers a third of the operating cost. So, anyway, I think the church, Elder Holland certainly has the right to come in and uh, kind of lay it down. Uh, that's a funny point, too. It's a, it's a bit
0: of a digression, but the the fact that BYU isn't designed for postgraduate work. I mean, obviously, there's elements that I joked about the Tanner Building. I mean, they've got their famous MBA program, a good law school, and you can get PhDs at BYU, even though you don't, I don't meet many people who bother to get doctoral degrees at BYU. But I've, I'm even looking here. I mean, you can get them in biochemistry, biology, chemistry, civil engineering, computer science. This is just on their website. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Electrical and computer engineering, random stuff, instructional psychology and technology, marriage and family therapy, mathematics. I mean, it it
1: doesn't do everything. My dad got a PhD at BYU 120 years ago, about 20 years before the school was founded. No, no. Uh He he got it. it, What what it would have been? It would have been 1970-ish. He got a PhD in uh, marriage counseling. Oh, see, it should
0: have been in their wildlife and wildlands conservation. You can be a doctor of that at BYU. That's (laughs) one of their programs.
1: He did it wrong. He did it wrong.
0: So the other side of this, um, and I like what Elder Holland's saying, right? It's like, no, this is, and it's like a lot of things. Like, I think the reason we have people serve missions personally isn't just to spread the gospel and win converts. It's to solidify the missionaries position within the church and keep them in the church. I think that's a big part of why we lowered the mission age to 18, because that's that was always, 18 to 19, you had the potential to be a lost year. And I'm sure that the stats that the brethren saw, saw a lot of young men just kind of drifting away from the church. And so you lower it by one year, get them through high school, pump them up for a mission, get them on the mission, and they're more likely to stay active and involved in the church. And BYU plays a role in that as well. Now, what's interesting though, is the TRIB, in its coverage, as you might imagine, can be the Trib likes to be a little more of a, a polemicist at times, and they zeroed on the fact that uh, he talked about friendly fire. Uh, he he quoted a quote. I want to say that correctly. He quoted then Elder Oaks quoting Elder Maxwell, basically saying that um, the old Saints used to when they built the Nabu Temple, they you know they basically had their Bible in one hand and a rifle in the other. And that maybe the professors at BYU essentially need to have the same mentality to defend the church just as they would defend themselves. But curiously, he also went after the valedictorian who came out as gay during his, comm- his commencement speech, which I think that one is intriguing. Intriguing. And I'd like to read the quote that he says and let you all make of it what you will. It's worth analyzing. I think you can see how you can Mm -hmm. definitely see how different sides could take it different ways. Um, He said, quote, if a student commandeers a graduation podium intended to represent everyone getting diplomas in order to announce his personal sexual orientation, what might another speaker feel free to announce the next year until eventually anything goes? What might commencement come to mean or not mean if we push individual license over institutional dignity for very long? Do we simply end up with more divisiveness in our culture than we already have? And we already have too much everywhere, end quote. I think he's making a good point there. I could see a very quick slippery slope. And one thing I saw in one online circle, it's like, so we're going to get on the case of the kid who felt it was like a safe space for him to come out during his commencement, and we have no problem bringing Dick Cheney to speak at commencement in 2007, which I knew it th- I was there. So I remember this. I mean, it was like, hey, he's the standing vice president. And it's an honor to have the vice president there. But there were so many who were like, dude, this man is a war monger, a war profiteer. Tons of beliefs that are antithetical to what we have as the church. He, and no. So it's like a stain on BYU to have his name as part of it. You understand all sides of this. So I don't know. I I, uh, I give plenty of license to Elder Holland. He's an apostle and I trust him and know him, but I could easily see like, well, why would you want to pick on the kid who, I guess he made it about him when he came out, as opposed to about the students, about the commencement, about everybody else. I mean, that's a fair thing. If you were a commencement speaker and you spent the whole time going on about any one particular facet of your life, if not sexual orientation, I don't know what else it might be, but if you spent all your time making it in essence about you, Ah, uh, you could see yeah. how that could be a problem and a a bad precedent. I just think the only hard thing is when it's when you're dealing with LGBTQ issues. There's already so much malignment there within these groups that if someone feels comfortable enough to do that in that environment, that's a powerful moment for them, and it says and it says a good thing about the inclusiveness of the institution.
1: Yes, it, 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 it does. If they roll with
0: it, you know. So
1: yeah, yeah. The, the juxtaposition of Elder Holland's talk and the new statement on belonging, it, it, it indicates how difficult this is for the church, uh, right? This is not an easy thing it's a for hard spot the church, nor for church yeah. members, right? Yeah. Yeah. We truly, genuinely believe as a matter of doctrine that God loves all his children, no exceptions. And that doesn't mean everybody goes to heaven. That's not our belief. But certainly God loves all of his children. And so clearly it is incumbent upon us to love everyone, right? We shouldn't exclude a group of people uh, because we don't like what they do or feel or think. And uh, so it it I think it highlights this point of tension in the church that we are still struggling uh, to understand and, and Elder Uchtdorf has said a, a number of times, as have others, that there are still more things we have to learn in this regard. And I think we need to remember that as we formulate policies and rhetoric and belonging statements. So anyway, it it is an interesting juxtaposition, those two oh. things on this one narrow point.
0: And it's funny, coming back to that commencement speaker, whose name was Matt Easton, Uh, When he was the valedictorian, and he basically equated his experience to that of Enos in the Book of Mormon. He said, "You know, it was in these quiet moments of pain and confusion that I felt a triumph. That was of coming to terms, not with who I thought I should be, but the way the Lord made me. As as such, I stand before my family, friends, and graduating class as a proud, uh, gay son of God. That took a lot of courage, and people cheered for him. And I think a lot of people had his back at the time. Anyways, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I I don't envy Elder Holland or any of the church leadership in this case because there's not. It's a
1: difficult thing to lead the church through
0: yeah and it's hard to say like well it's not a sin to be gay but it's a sin to act upon being gay and it's it's i i think the church is kind of like elder holland said like there's gonna be times we're just gonna be left alone and stand alone and that's just how it's gonna be but it is really tough with this issue of we're trying to we're being more inclusive of gay members of our faith And like, how do we do that in a way that we still feel like we're being responsible with everything else, which which we shouldn't feel it's I know I'm with you on that. It's tough. There are no easy answers here. The easy answer is to love everybody. And we can do that at the personal level, but uh, at the other levels, it gets a a bit trickier. All righty, cool. I'm gonna give you a couple of quick mentions. They, they're gonna they're doing the groundbreaking for the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania temple. I mentioned this to you because it happened last Saturday, and because Pittsburgh is one of the greatest cities in the United States, and everyone should love it. And I'm thrilled they're getting a temple there. A <laughs> uh, temple in Pittsburgh was long on our list of temple predictions that we do every general conference. Which reminds me, we're about a month and change away from having to publish the next ones. So very excited that they'll get a temple up there, North of Pittsburgh and crownberry township where I once slept at a red roof Inn, and it was a delightful experience. So great job, Pittsburgh people. They're assigned to the DC temple, which is bonkers to all of us. It's like a four hour drive from Pittsburgh to DC. It is not. Cl- you could drive to Columbus in two and a half hours where there's a temple. I don't even know why they are in our district, but we're going to lose them and Richmond. And someday we will have our temple. Uh,
1: as yeah. well. Congratulations, to Pittsburgh. Congratulations,
0: <laughs> Good for them. To Pittsburgh. Good for
1: them. Uh, you know, uh, continuing with my BYU theme, uh, if you'll forgive me, I, I was really excited to read about the 90-year-old BYU grad. Uh, Oneda Sum- Sumption. Oneda Sumption, 90 years old. This is great. Graduated from BYU this week. Uh, uh, she got her BA in Journalism. I was, I confess that when you get into the details of the story, I have to admit I was a little bit disappointed because it's not like she's been going to class lately. <laughs> uh, she was she was one class short when she left school 60, 70 years ago. Yeah. And worked in journalism for her career. And uh her family convinced BYU to give her credit for having worked in her career in journalism uh, to make up for that missing class and to give her a degree, Uh, which is cool. I'm glad they did. But when I saw the headline, I have to confess, I was envisioning this woman going to class every day for years to graduate uh, at 90. Uh, But that sadly is not what happened. But Oneida... Sumption, congratulations! We're happy and, for na- you.
0: and now she's working for BuzzFeed. So congratulations! On it. <laughs> great.
1: Thanks. <laughs> uh, you oh, gave you gave me a lot sorry. more than
0: I deserve for that one, Devin. Thank you. No, no, um, no
1: that was funny. That was that was funny. That was well. Funny. Thank you.
0: Uh, some slightly disappointing God. news, uh, as a lot of things have been scaled back a little bit because of the Delta variant with COVID. For example, um, you know the church was going to call people the people who work at the church office building that they were supposed to come back like last week uh, that's been delayed another thing delayed is the tabernacle choir at Temple square getting back to you know its business more or less they were supposed to be um start rehearsals again on Thursday August 26th that has been pushed back they will have a little private devotional but um basically they're still working on that And uh, it makes sense, you know. It's a group of three hundred people that need to stand next to each other and not wear masks to be successful at what they're doing, and you can imagine why that becomes difficult. And I know this has got to be frustrating for the choir, though. I mean, if I'm sure, I know conference in October, they've said we'll be back in the conference center main auditorium instead of the theater next, you know, attached to it. But it's still not going to be open to the public. But I have to imagine they were hoping that the tabernacle choir would be vaccinated and safe and they could have the choir behind them and the choir could still sing live, even though there'd be nobody else there. And I imagine this is very frustrating because they're wondering, can we do that now? Or are we going to be replaying broadcasts again for the fourth time? Uh, Fourth time? Is that where we're at now? The fourth time? Third time? I don't know where we are with this anymore. I've lost track of, yeah, fourth time. It's October. Crazy, man. Um, so I hope it gets better. Another another reason, folks, to work hard to make COVID go away. Do you want TabCats back? I want TabCats back. I love the broadcast,
1: but I want them back. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we need them back. The world needs them back. That's for sure. Well, uh, Jeff, did you talk about uh, Jeff Borders' thing last week, his Pioneer article? We did not. Should we talk about that a little bit? Hit me. So this is a really interesting piece that Jeff Borders wrote for TWIM. And uh, I I love his perspective uh, because I have the opposite perspective. Uh, And so it is a great reminder of empathy just to read his take on all of this. But Mm -hmm. he he didn't grow up in Utah, is a, a convert or convert, you know, relatively recent in his family. So he doesn't have this pioneer ancestry. and uh, doesn't live in Utah. And so he kind of just didn't get it. Uh, and he talked about kind of his spiritual conversion to his connection to, uh, the pioneers after he did kind of a church history tour this summer, starting in, uh, the Palmyra area and then going through down to independence and through some, all these, uh, church history sites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have visited most of them. And so it was interesting reading his take on this and, and having always had a deep connection to pioneers because all of my ancestors of that vintage were pioneers. So I'm, I'm exactly in the opposite boat, right? Uh, Um, I'll be the last of my generation with that. My wife, I married a woman, wonderful woman who has some pioneer and uh, ancestry, but she's not pure. Oh my gosh. Pioneer you, married, style. you married
0: a mudblood. How could you do that? Yeah.
1: So, you know, her mother was a convert to the church. So it's crazy, but, uh, my mother-in-law is also a convert to the church. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, thank heavens for that. But it, it, anyway, it was great to read this piece, uh, because I've, I've often heard people feeling this way outside Utah, and it was fun to kind of be able to channel this and recognize that, um, there is a different feeling, you know, at the beginning, certainly, uh, that we all have toward pioneers, uh, But I remember, you know, I, when I lived out in DC before you were born, uh, that, that we had a rather robust pioneer day celebration out there. I was very, very impressed. So, uh, not everybody, uh, outside Utah feels this lack of connection, but, but I get that some do. I remember hearing it then from some folks like, why are we doing this? It's just, you know, but yeah, it's, uh. There is a connection that we, I think, can all feel to the sacrifices and the difficulties of building the church, traveling across the plains, and establishing a, a place for the church to prosper here uh, in the West. Uh, it was not easy. And no, um, <laughs> no. You know, I, I live two blocks from the Salt Lake Temple and run by it most mornings. And, uh, you know, it is, it is quite a monument. Uh, to the history of, you know, to, to pioneering. Uh, and it, it is kind of difficult, if not impossible, to completely separate pioneer history from the establishment of the church and its doctrine. It, 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 they're interwoven. So anyway, it was great to hear Jeff's take on that or read Jeff's take.
0: No, I I think Jeff struck a chord with this one. It was a great piece. I I mean, especially as a convert, I grew up in Southern California. I mean, we were aware of Pioneer Day and obviously there's pioneer heritage there. I mean, the Mormon Battalion Center in San Diego. I mean, Latter-day Saints founded San Bernardino and boy, I wish they would have held on to that place because it has not carried itself well since then. Um, (laughs) Come on, San Berdu, get it together. (laughs) There's a reason the temple in that area is in Redlands, not in San Bernardino, uh, despite it being the the big city of the region. Um, yeah, I appreciate that too. It's a, it's a good piece. One of my favorite things. Yeah. I've only seen. I've only seen some pioneer things. I've been to Utah, of course. I've seen a lot of the sites there. I've been to uh, Palmyra. Uh, my wife and I have been there, and that was a really neat experience. One of my favorite memories was we toured the Grand and Book Print Bookstore store. And the mission president for the Rochester mission happened to be there at the same time. So he was along for the tour. I don't know if he was trying to show up his sister missionaries who were giving it, but but we had way more insights than we normally would have because that was in his portfolio. That was really interesting. And honestly, one of the favorite things I've experienced is my good buddy, Al co-founder of this show all those years ago, grew up in Caldwell County, Missouri, and that's where he still lives. And when I've been out there to visit him- I mean, the Far West Temple site is on the way from his house into town where he works, and there's all this these little nuggets of history. I love I love going to the Far West site. Like you just pace around and think, like the cornerstones yeah. are, still, are there. It's this monument to something that should have been, but wasn't, you know. And and many one wonder, they've wondered for years when they announced a the temple in the Kansas City area. That many were like, "Are they going to do it in Far West? Like, are we going to build it? Like, do a Nauvoo? You know, just build it there?" They didn't do that, of course, but. uh
1: we have yeah, a lot of rich, i rich I can relate to that a little bit i'll I'll share one story and I'll try to keep this uh safe but 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 about thirty years ago, I was living in upstate New York, and uh I was assigned to give a talk in church, and I was struggling to get it prepared. just didn't know what to say and mm-hmm. so finally i I sort of remembered hearing a talk once about preparing talks and the basically the theme of this talk about preparing talks was don't prepare the talk, prepare yourself. So I said, okay, I'm going to do that. So I got up like it was super early for me. So that would probably have been six o'clock, maybe a mm-hmm. little earlier. And I drove up to the uh, sacred grove. Uh, and this was at the time, right? 30 years ago it was different. There was no temple there. There was no visitor center there. The crowds, uh, this was the off season. It wasn't the summer. This was during the school year. As I recall, it was spring, uh, April, April or May. So uh, I went and I had the chance to go be all alone, completely, 100% alone and unaccompanied in the sacred grove. That was a profound experience. So anyway, yeah, uh, these church history sites are pretty cool and sacred, and I love them.
0: That's great stuff. Thanks, Devin. Well, folks, that's our that's it for the week. week. That's it for the week. I slur my way out of the
1: episode. It's tired to here on the East
0: Coast. What can I say? It's yeah, tired Yeah, thank you.
1: Oh, hey, can, can I
0: plug my book? I was about to ask you to plug the book. Go ahead.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Dang it. That would have been so much cooler it, it if i let a, you ask me. It would have been okay, smooth, let's pretend. Go yeah. ahead and do it. Ask me and I'll pretend I didn't do that. So
0: Devin, I understand before we go, you uh, you have a book, another book coming out. I think you talked about it last time you were on the show, but it's ready to go, right? Why don't you tell us yeah, what's going on that's with that? right.
1: Thank you very much for asking me unprompted and uh, unscripted You're to uh, talk about my book. That's very kind of you. I so yeah, you. I, uh, I just finished my book, uh, Superpowers for Good. Uh, it's about some of my interviews with uh, amazing people, including Bill Gates, and their uh, insights about you know what their personal strengths are and how we can emulate great people. And there are a bunch of Mormons in the book. So it's uh, definitely worth reading if you're a Latter-day Saint. And uh, it's available, Superpowers for Good, as a pre-order on Amazon right now.
0: Awesome. We'll put a link to it with this episode, folks. That way I get an affiliate commission if you buy it. Booyah. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah. Do that. There's the dream. Cool, man. That's great. Well, we'll look forward to that. How many pages is it? Just so we can plan.
1: It's like uh, 246, I think. Easy read. No problem, right? That, yeah. Yeah. No, it that's... should be a fun read. I really hope so. Good. And okay. I, I'm working on the audiobook this week, and that'll really be a fun one for those who like that kind of thing, because yeah. I have it for each chapter with- each of 66 different people, I have the original recording of them describing their own superpowers. So that's good kind of fun. I like that. That's nice. All right, yeah. Well, everybody, support Devin and support us, of course. Please
0: go to thisweekinmormons.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. All that good stuff. But sincerely, thank you for taking the time to listen. It means a lot to us. And uh, we'll be with you again next week. We're creeping towards Labor Day, folks. Wear that white while you can. Until then. For Devin, I'm Jeff. This has been This Week in Mormons. We'll talk to you later.